Hello, I'm Marianne Fessenden, Educational and Academic Liaison for AMTS and your host for this series. Welcome to the July 14th recording of the 2020 The Nutritionist with Drs. Jude Capper and Sarah Place. This presentation is part of our continuing series focusing on emissions. Today's webinar is a little different for a couple of reasons. Firstly, we are featuring two speakers, and secondly, I am hoping you will leave this webinar with some plans and thoughts for taking the information you know to be true about animal agriculture and using it to best communicate with those who may not be aware of the facts and who may actually believe falsehoods. We are excited to have two well-known animal agriculture sustainability experts join us to help with our knowledge level and provide pointers for communicating. The presentations are pre-recorded, so I have arbitrarily decided to run the presentation from Dr. Sarah Place first. Sarah is the Chief Sustainability Officer at Atlanco, where she provides technical expertise on sustainability issues to customers and supports Elanco's healthy purpose. Prior to Elanco, she was the Senior Director for Sustainable Beef Production Research at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association and an Assistant Professor in Sustainable Beef Cattle Systems at Oklahoma State University. She received her PhD in animal biology from the University of California, Davis, and a BS in animal science from Cornell University. We will first listen to Sarah's presentation. I will provide an introduction to Jude when we change to her webinar. Hi there, my name is Sarah Place. I'm the Chief Sustainability Officer with the Linko Animal Health and here to talk a bit more about um, how we can talk about sustainability to non uh, expert audiences, and particularly from a U.S. perspective. So to get right into it, it's always key to start talking about when we say sustainability, what do we really mean, right? And this is a complex topic and can mean many things to different people. And this is part of the challenge when we think about communicating this, this topic is how specific we are and trying to be as specific as we can be when it comes to different audiences. Overall, there's broad a um, acknowledgement that sustainability is about balancing three main areas. So the environment, social issues, and economics. So we can think about it as kind of historically that idea of the triple bottom line, right? People, plan, and profit. Um, and another classic definition that's out there is from the UN about sustainable development, meeting the needs of the present without sacrificing the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. So when we think about that, it really is about across these three domains and thinking about a long-term perspective. Now, as we see on the slide here, there's many different issues that have fallen under this Venn diagram that's not even an exhaustive list of things we can consider when we're talking about sustainability and dairy or beef production, for example, and complex topics even within each one of these spheres or domains of sustainability, such as animal welfare, which is complex on its own. But the key thing is that while we're balancing all these items, and folks may agree that everything is, that's listed here on, these, on this slide is important. Much of the sustainability conversation comes down to climate change, but then also comes down to these basically should questions as I've listed on the left-hand side. So questions around what should we be eating from a sustainability perspective? How should food be produced? Whether we're talking about beef or dairy or just even more broadly of all food types, and then basically, should beef and dairy be a part of a sustainable diet? 
So the reason I highlight this is just because this highlights the, the complexity that it's about value judgments, right? There is no necessarily right or wrong answer when we use the word should. It's about how people uh, bring their own perspectives and values to the table, right? There's objective evidence we can evaluate, but different people may have different perspectives. And that can make communicating about this issue uh, difficult as well. Not everyone will agree, and that's actually okay and to be expected in a complex topic such as this when it comes to sustainability. So when we talk about different audiences, typically we think about outside the industry, we're thinking about this broad uh, amorphous group of the consumer, right? But who is the consumer? Of course, we're all consumers. So we can think about more specific audiences when we're talking about this topic. And one of those is definitely driving a lot of the conversation today are investors, right? So um, this whole area of so-called ESG or environment social governance is, is really shaping the landscape of, of investors today and how they're evaluating different capital investments or how financial decisions are going to get made. So I've just highlighted here and pulled out some quotes from the latest letter from Larry Fink. So basically every February, uh, he writes a letter to the CEOs. He's the CEO of BlackRock, as you can see, rather large investor, right? $9.5 trillion of assets under management. Um, and as this quote kind of highlights from his latest letter, it's all about basically ESG, this concept of net zero. Um, and basically this quote summarizes, you know, what are you going to do to disrupt yourself in this new sustainability environment? Or are you going to not respond and basically go the way of the dodo, right? So this idea of things are changing, how are you going to respond? So this kind of mentality of um, we need to respond to these societal questions is really key in this investor space and kind of in the backdrop of this whole idea of how we're going to communicate uh, this topic of sustainability to those audiences that are non-experts who are not familiar with um, the ins and outs of animal agriculture, if you will. There are also specific investors that have their own point of view, right? Their own value judgments are quite clear in terms of what they believe. And I think this is a great example here of uh, the FAIR initiative, if you're not, um, not familiar with this group, the members of this group, as, as is highlighted in the screenshot here, represent $66 trillion of assets under management, right? So this is basically a group that puts out reports and evaluations of different supply chains and their interpretation of how sustainable or how well they're meeting animal welfare requirements uh, for different food companies, for example. What I've highlighted here, though, is that the founder of this fund has a very clear point of view where he is basically um, what he would say is against factory farming or wants to end factory farming. And we know that from a communication standpoint and being specific, what does that really mean? Does it basically mean all of animal agriculture? How do you define factory farming, et cetera, et cetera? Um, this is one of these challenges out there is that you have groups that are uh, very well funded and very influential um, that have very specific points of view that influence a lot of the conversation and those folks that you may want to influence as well when you're having uh, conversations around sustainability and animal agriculture. There's also a lot of noise and a lot of advertising, a lot of marketing around the whole space of dairy alternatives. Um, and this is just a couple examples here of Perfect Day Foods and then uh, some advertising materials from Beyond Meat. And they're all focused on these sustainability issues, right? Around animal welfare, human nutrition, uh, resource use, greenhouse gas emissions, climate change, 
And just the amount of money that has gone into these alternatives just highlights how important this conversation is, right? People have a perception that animal agriculture is not sustainable, and they're um, putting these alternatives forward as a way to improve sustainability or get what you want, which is consuming animal source foods uh, without creating all these negative so-called externalities or the idea of things that we're not pricing into the system currently. So to put it starkly, when we think about this issue of sustainability and why it's so important to communicate on this topic is again, we have this perception that basically the supply side cannot improve enough. And so therefore the industry uh, needs to shrink. And we see this conversation or this framing a lot, especially in uh, the United States and in uh, European countries of talking about dietary change and trying to shrink the industry, for example. Um, and kind of, again, I've, I've put it pretty starkly, but this is really how this conversation is kind of playing out in a lot of those influential circles and folks that maybe aren't living the day-to-day -day experience of uh, either the farmers and ranchers themselves or the people that are directly supporting those folks in the industry, right? There's this broader societal conversation and perception. So if you want to provide a little bit of illumination, if you will, or information about how things are being done currently or the progress that's been made or the commitments to try to get better, this is kind of the question right at the bottom. Like, how do you credibly communicate to these audiences that are outside of the folks that live and breathe this every single day, right? And it's, it's not straightforward in terms of how we do that. Um, I'll share a bit of uh, some of the literature that's out there, but then also my perspectives, my limited perspectives, uh, just engaging on these topics on social media. Uh, it won't give you any, any elixirs of what the best answer is, if you will, uh, but um, just share some perspectives and some of the ways to approach this. So a classic framing of this whole idea of science communications can be kind of summed up by this quote that's on the slide here from Carl Sagan, right? Obviously a great public communicator of science, of popular science. Um, and basically you can sum up his quote of saying, you know, we've created this incredibly complex global civilization that depends on all these intricate understandings of science and technology. Uh, but we have so many people that don't understand how any of this stuff works, right? And sooner or later, these two things are going to run into each other. And it's going to create this combustible mix of ignorance and people in power that, uh, you know, as he puts it, could blow up in our face, right? And so this is a, a pretty popular understanding of, hey, things have gotten so complex and folks uh, don't have that understanding of it. And that complexity can make people basically turn turn inward, if you will, and uh, and away from different science um, or technology advancements. So this is a fairly popular understanding of, of how we think about science communication. However, it's a little bit more complicated than this, right? And that type of thinking about, hey, it's complex. What we need to do is make sure people understand things, right? They just need more information if that's actually the problem, right? And this has historically been the way science has been communicated or sometimes still, still is, quite frankly of the idea of, hey, we need to educate people, right? We need to provide more information and this, this idea of a knowledge deficit model, right? Viewing people as basically an empty vessel. If we pour uh, information into them, they'll gain more knowledge and they'll hopefully better understand the topic and, and things will be better, right? Um, the reality though is, as is highlighted on the screen here, just this one paper as an example, is there's actually not a lot of empirical evidence that this is true, which is kind of ironic, right? If we think about uh, 
we scientists uh, using this framing, and then there's not a lot of evidence that this actually is the, the way things go when it comes to science communication. So there is, a, of course, a whole field of science communication and uh, folks that specialize this in this. And this is uh, one, one individual that's uh, been influential in this is wrote books on the topic, uh, Dan Cahan or Cahan, if I'm pronouncing his name right, at Yale University. And I've just pulled out some of the quotes here from this one paper, um, basically highlighting that when we think about public science understanding or comprehension, it's often not about that knowledge deficit model or just giving people more information, but rather how trustworthy are people viewed and how legitimate is the basically the messenger of such information, right? So it's more about the trustworthiness and understanding those social relationships and understanding that that's really what people will lean on when they make decisions um, and use that as basically a shorthand to know, hey, is this legitimate information or not um, from that standpoint? So, of course, we can think about many examples of this, right? A classic example of, you know, people may not understand how airplanes work, right? But you have that understanding or that uh, trust, right? Hopefully, some of us do, some of us don't, in, in a pilot's ability to fly the airplane, right? So you're going you're gonna to put your trust in them to do it. You may not have to understand all the intricacies of how this airplane works. You just put your trust in them, right? Or the same thing with, say, an iPhone or a computer. You may not understand how it works, but you trust that it's a legitimate technology and you go forward with it, right? And so how we as people trust or view risk to different technologies and different aspects of society is influenced by who you are and what kind of experiences you have, right? This is fairly well documented. This is kind of more of a classic paper from over 20 years ago, um, looking at risk perception. It's a nice review paper. Um, and it's just pulled out here, right? People aren't People aren't irrational, right? It's their lived experience and um, how they have been, uh, how they've how they've experienced society influences how willing they are to take on risk or adopt um, or view new um, issues or technologies, right? So this chart that's on the side here is really just looking at perception of risk of different technologies or different topics. And you can see the demographics at the top of the slide, right? The solid circles and line that's over on the left-hand side for each one of these topics are is represented by white males um, in society, right? So really the takeaway here is that um, if you're someone that perhaps has experienced less of uh, the challenges in each in society on different topics, you may have a lower uh, perception of risk of some of these technologies versus if you're somebody of a demographic group that has experienced more challenges, you may be a little more hesitant, right? And then again, that's just kind of the basics of, of human behavior in terms of conditioning and, and how people um, have experienced the world, right? So it's not necessarily, this is not a statement of good or bad, it's just a, a reality of how in general, on average, right, individual experiences vary. Uh, how people view some of these different topics from a risk perception standpoint. So all that said, right, there is a science of science communication, um, but there is no cookie cutter way to do this in the right way in terms of communicating science, right? And this is a, a nice paper that came out a couple of years ago of when we think about science communication or talking to uh, a variety of audiences, 
what's important is just to be clear on what is the objective, right? So we sometimes talk about these things in such a broad um, way, right, to test out if we're successful or not and have the empirical evidence to back that up is very, very difficult, right? Um, so this paper kind of goes through some, some nice highlights of uh, the issues of actually evaluating how successful we are from a scientific, scientific communication standpoint it really comes down to the fact that we need to be more specific about what the goals are, right? Are you trying to influence people? Are you just trying to inform people? Um, what is a specific topic? Is it science in general, right? For example, um, being very clear about what the actual aims of uh, your communication are is going to help in terms of saying, are we doing a good job or not from that standpoint, right? So this is kind of, again, the, the high level theoretical piece of it, but just thinking about um, treating people as empty vessels and just saying, hey, we're just going to pour knowledge into them, um, even though we all probably have done that of just thinking, hey, I'm just going to get give people more details, leave with the details. Um, that doesn't necessarily work, right? And, and a lot of folks have probably heard that that uh, that quote, that adage of uh, people don't aren't gonna aren't gonna care about the details, right? Basically, until they they know how much you care about the topic, and that that leading with the feelings and the connection does really matter from that standpoint uh, when it comes to science communication. So another great resource, and this is a few years ago that um, Allison Van Eman. Dr. Allison Van Eman at UC Davis put this out, but I think she did a great job of also highlighting one of the challenges in the science communication space, which is there's a lot of different variations of misinformation, disinformation. I think all of us over the last few years have seen that firsthand on a variety of topics, right? So this is, this is probably front of mind for a lot of us. Um, and one of the challenges in the agricultural space is this whole idea as Allison outlined in this topic or this lecture, this idea of parallel science, right? In parallel science, we can think about this and kind of define it as um, science that looks like normal science, but basically the way to the way to put it is it's science in reverse, right? It's folks that have a set conclusion that they already have, and then they are going to design an experiment or seek out um, information in the literature to basically back up what they say, right? So very subtle difference there in terms of how we think about the scientific method really going in terms of testing out a hypothesis versus having something that's predetermined and you're going to do your damnedest to reinforce what your beliefs already are and put that out into this into the uh, world, right? Um, and a lot of this, right, comes back to those value judgments and people's perception about who's who's going to be biased or not is going to be dependent upon where you're standing. Um, but a great example here is, of course, uh, a lot of people are probably familiar with this retracted article in the screenshot on the left-hand side, right, of, of uh, some fairly shoddy uh, work trying to link Roundup uh, and GMOs uh, to, to cancer and toxicity in uh, using a rodent model, right? That's a pretty classic paper of great example of parallel science, right? In terms of the model that was used, you were going to find the tumors and using using photos and everything else to kind of manipulate um, people's perception in that, that whole arena. Another potential example here and, and an interesting whole debate is this whole idea of sustainable diets and what a fraught and <laughs> complicated topic area this is. Um, but this whole Eat Lancet Commission that some of you all may be familiar with that came out a few years ago is such a fascinating example of a basically a non 
governmental organization with a set agenda in terms of wanting to uh, push more so-called plant-based diets for the for people, planet, animals, and then doing this entire commission and getting this published in the Lancet and fairly unsurprising results given what the mission of the EAT Foundation was, right? They wanted to transform the food system. And so they came up with a report that says we need to transform the food system, right? <laughs> so again, just a very interesting phenomenon that's happening uh, out there in terms of this idea of parallel science. So really, when it comes to this whole topic, when we talk about sustainability, which again, back to that Venn diagram model, it's a whole host of issues, darn near everything could fall under the category of sustainability, right? Everything from profitability of producers to animal welfare to climate change, right? All these topics are under that umbrella. It's really in this messy middle where these topics are taking place. And this is why it can be difficult to communicate about it because there is sometimes just no, there is no clear answer. Right, it is should questions that are being asked, and so um, as scientists or people that are experts in the field, whether you're animal nutritionist, dairy farmer, whoever you may be, right, you you have expertise and you can provide information for folks. But it's also recognizing that not everybody's going to approach this the same way or believe the same thing, and nor do we people, human beings, change our mind typically when we're introduced to new information the first time. Right, so that's another thing to keep in mind. In these conversations is it's, it is more of a conversation on longer term communication if you're seeking to shift people's perceptions, rather than just having one conversation and having someone have an epiphany and totally change the way they, they think about something. So when we zoom in more on animal agriculture and this whole idea of you know, public conversations about this and why communications are important, it probably doesn't need to be belabored too much. I think all of you have, have seen a lot of headlines out there, and this is just one example, right, last year, The Economist put out this article on, you know what, we should treat beef like coal, basically. It's the coal of the food world. Um, this is how much emissions per calorie it emits. It's way more than tofu, for example. Um, and using this comparison, as you all can see in the screenshot here, right? So there's so many things that we could pull apart from that, from the standpoint of, you know, is this really the most important metric? Is calories the most important thing we could put in the denominator? What about other aspects of sustainability, right? So on and so forth. But a great example of how things can get boiled down into a simplistic graphic and then get put out there and, and kind of change people's perceptions because they see this repeated over and over again. And another example here, just a couple screenshots from an interesting little um, report that came out last year or a, uh, a post on Stanford University's uh, website. Um, saying, you know, we're going to, we should embrace a plant-based diet. And I think a great example here of that kind of overarching um, narrative, if you will, that, hey, you know what, plant-based is better. It's better because of all these different aspects of environment, um, your health, right? Um, and this interesting bottom screenshot that I pulled out, right? Um, if you eat plant-based, you're going to prevent animal cruelty because just the implicit act of raising animals is is somehow abusive and cruel, right? So if you're in animal agriculture, reading some of these things can, can raise your blood pressure, ironically, <laughs> right? As you're looking at this. Um, but I think it's just important to note that this is one of the challenges, right? Is something gets repeated so often that it can just be put on a prestigious university website without a citation and just taken as fact, right? Um, and that's our big challenge is how do we start pulling apart some of these underlying assumptions that are built into this 
and allowing people to think critically and question each one of those um, in an informed way, right? Again, from that standpoint of just providing people things to think about, right? And to work through um, how much of this is truly true and how much of it is repeated ad nauseum to the point where it's taken as fact outright. So if we're gonna think about this from a communications perspective, um, and you know, again, from the, from the example of those screenshots on the slide before, whether it's a standpoint of saying, hey, this is actually more complicated, you know, how do we define so-called uh, factory farming? What are your criteria? What are your objectives? Or here's what we're gonna do in the future to provide people that evidence, right? How are the ways that you could actually have those communications with people, especially to non-agricultural audiences, or as I've said here, right, non-peer audiences, if you're thinking about it from an animal science perspective? Obviously, the first and foremost way we communicate is talking to each other, whether it's face-to-face, -face, right, on, on the street in the last few years, whether it's on a Zoom call, whatever it may be. That tends to be the most effective, right, when we think about having conversations because you're able to read somebody's body language, you're able to have that full conversation experience of communication. There's obviously a lot of examples of traditional media. This can be hard for, for folks to get into because there's the, the aspect of the reality of uh, basically the gatekeeping of editorial decisions in terms of what perspectives are uh, put out there. And then, of course, what's exploded in the last decade plus is non-traditional ways of communicating, right? Whether it's your own self-publishing of a podcast or a webinar or blogs, right, um, which are not as popular now, but definitely have been. And then all the forms of social media, right? So everything from Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and then I put on the bottom here, right, all these new uh, social media platforms that are, that are larger some, than some of those traditional ones, right? For example, TikTok has, has grown tremendously um, and, it, and is a way for people to, in an unfiltered way, right, get communications out there to, to talk to people in a real, real manner. When we think about it from like a more formal um, animal science perspective, right, or uh, university or companies, for example, um, the conversation is, a, I think, a great example of a website that puts out credible information from credentialed folks on controversial topics. So I've just pulled out a few here that are relevant to uh, the whole frame of animal science, right? So we have an article from Frank Midliner at Davis, Allison Van Eenman at Davis, and this nice article of, uh, from, again, a few years ago of just about the whole urban poultry uh, movement and the health considerations there, right? So a great resource for people that are considering this of, hey, you know, there are, there are health implications if we put uh, chickens in everybody's backyard, right? So a great resource for more long-form communication and a great example of how uh, I would say this can be done successfully, um, putting, putting scientific information out there, but in a way that is readable from a lay audience perspective, not overly technical. Of course, what, what folks are very familiar with too, and a great way of doing science communication, or at least a great way of, of reaching a tremendous number of folks has been all the TED Talks that are out there, uh, whether they're main events or um, some of the TEDx like local events that will often get put out there on YouTube or um, on the TED website, right? Um, so this is a great example here of, a, of animal science being communicated. So just recently, uh, Ermius Kabrab's uh, video on the whole research area of red seaweed and methane emissions from cattle 
a 10 minute video, a less than 10 minute video got put on the TED website. I just want to draw your attention to look at how many views this has, right? It has over a million views. And I would say from a standpoint of actually getting an animal scientist or somebody who's actually aware of animal agriculture, their perspective out there, that's a huge success, right? And that's one of the advantages of some of these more larger non-traditional now becoming powerhouse uh, communications platforms like TED is a way to get that science out there in a, that way, right? Most of us are not going to get invited to a TED talk though, right? But this is a great way for those folks that have that profile to get out there and, and get on the, on the main stage. So the reality is, is, you know, you don't have to be a uh, tenured professor at UC Davis to share your information with the world. We're all, we're all a, uh, a reporter. We're all people that are putting out our opinions, whether it's about your, your dog or the dinner you just ate, right, on social media. And this has been something that's been a huge shift if we think about just of human communication uh, in the last decade is this massive proliferation of social media, right? Um, and these are just some interesting statistics on the slide here of the, the size of social media networks, right? So Facebook has 2.9 billion users, right? Which is crazy uh, in terms of globally, how many folks are actually on this platform. So a significant portion, basically, a, right? A third of the, of the world's population is uh, over a third is on Facebook, right? Um, and you can see these different uh, platforms uh, ranked here by by size. What's interesting is some of these platforms are used by different populations, right? So you'll see down at the bottom, I'll talk to you a little bit later about my experiences with Twitter. Twitter is not that very large in terms of a social media platform, but what's unique about it is a lot of the people that are gatekeepers of the media or people that generate stories, aka journalists, are on Twitter and on Twitter all the time. So it's very interesting. It's that it's a smaller platform, but it's very influential in terms of how it drives traditional media or how it influences what gets covered by traditional media, right? Um, so again, as I mentioned, TikTok is, is a great example of something that just exploded out of nowhere and now has over a billion or has a billion users, at least as of January of this year. So when we think about science communication, right, I'll just finish up here on just my own personal experiences of using Twitter as, as a scientist and like, how do we, how do we actually reach non-ag audiences on this? And uh, <laughs> as Jeff says, right, I'll share with what my experience is and, and how I use it, but I can't, again, say that I'm, I'm some sort of expert or I know what success is per se in this topic area. I'll just share with you my, my perspectives of using Twitter as a tool. So when we think about the basics of this platform, this social media platform, if you're not as familiar with Twitter, um, what it really is, is kind of like sharing headlines. That's what it is, right? It's for sharing quick thoughts, questions, you have facts uh, in tweets, and the, the character limit currently is 280 characters, right? So of all exclamation points, letters, numbers, spaces that you put in there, each tweet can only be 280 character uh, limits. You can also, on these things, you can share images, links, videos, um, again, to, to highlight whatever you're talking about or whatever your question may be, right, that you're putting out there in the tweet. Um, what's unique about Twitter as compared to, say, Facebook is that if your profile is public, literally anybody in the world can read your tweets, right? 
Um, and that's what makes it kind of unique as compared to say Facebook, where you can make it pretty locked up and only your friends, um, people that you may even know in real life can see what you're posting. Um, you can follow people from anywhere um, and then their tweets will show up in your in your timeline or your your feed right as you look at the at the platform. Um, obviously there's lots of people that have used this platform tweet from somebody who's no longer a user. I just put this tweet up here just because I do think it is probably uh, one of the funnier things that that guy said regardless of your views of him is uh, <laughs> his, his statement here about Michael Cohen. So what is what is uh, Twitter good for, right? So it's one of those things where you can connect, even though it's you can have a public account, you can connect to um, people that are in your own bubble and share your interests, right? So for example, you can really connect with other uh, fellow folks in animal agriculture, dairy industry, in the beef industry, whatever it may be. Or if you you know again if you're a scientist or coming at it from that perspective, connecting to fellow scientists or cross disciplinary fields if you have that interest, it is good for reaching outside of outside of the silo, if you will, of agriculture as well. Though it it really depends on who you follow and how you engage. If you can get outside of that bubble, or if you're just going to end up talking to like-minded folks, right? Um, again, my personal experience, why I joined this platform was just, especially when I was in a role with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, was knowing and understanding that a lot of journalists and people that are super interested in the sustainability of food and beef specifically actually have these conversations on Twitter. And so this is why I joined this platform was to be a part of that, to make sure I could see what people were saying and engage where, where it made sense. And then, of course, the other good thing about Twitter is it's it's good for the jokes, right? It's just kind of this funny screenshot that I put up here. Um, it's good for short, pithy statements and sometimes can be amusing as well, right? So that's the, the benefit of, of Twitter. So in terms of what this looks like or just using my own profile as an example, right, and some of the very basic aspects of, of success that I would say, um, and I see this sometimes with people I know in real life that will use Twitter and they may have their name and I know who they are, but if you don't have a photo in there <clears throat> or you don't have a bio um, to let people know who you are, it can seem like you're kind of a, you're maybe a bot or maybe not a legitimate source, right? So if you want to use this particular social media platform to share information and not just follow people, I would say that's a key consideration is to, you know, let people know who you are, put a bio in there to describe um, who you are, what your expertise is. Um, you, unless you're, you know, unless you're basically Beyonce, right? You're not going to be able to get away with not putting who you are and what you do uh, in your Twitter Twitter bio, right? So that's just one of those good uses of uh, or good practices if you're going to use this platform to actually share information. And in terms of engagement, um, what I found is successful when we think about um, Twitter is to share interesting content with people, right? Um, I have, it surprises me of 11,000 people that follow me on Twitter and I may mainly share facts about cattle, right? And there's apparently that many people that care. Um, so there's always a niche audience that may be interested in what you have to share. Um, but I would say one of the key things to drive a larger audience is really thinking about how you compose, you know, what you're sharing, right? So I'd say uh, this example that I pulled out here is kind of a great example of what does drive more engagement for people, which is providing an image or, or some sort of way to visually represent a point that you're trying to make. 
I always like to provide a link to an article or to the source of whatever I'm quoting, just so those folks that are interested can click on it and learn more, right? And keeping in mind that idea that a tweet is basically just a headline, right? You're never going to be able to share all the complex context um, on a topic. Rather, it's a way to hopefully grab people's attention and drive them towards um, more legitimate information sources, in this case, a, a source of the UN Food and Agriculture Organization talking about what cattle consume and the whole idea of upcycling, basically. Um, so again, you're, you're wanting to share what is the takeaway if you're going to use the, the format in this manner that, that I'm showing here again. There's many different ways. There's, this is just the, the example of how I use, use this platform. I've also shown the, the screenshot here of just some of the metrics that are out there and some of these different social media platforms will allow you to have a bit of a, a test case of, you know, how successful was a given post, right? So, for example, in this case, 13,000 impressions just means it popped up on 13,000 people's feed does not mean that 13,000 people actually stopped and looked at it and read it, right? Um, that's more reflected by the engagements, meaning that's how many people either clicked on it, clicked on the image, clicked on the link, clicked on the profile, whatever it may be of the given tweet, right? Uh, these little numbers at the bottom, so there's six replies, uh, 60 retweets, meaning that many people retweeted it into other people's feeds and 162 likes, right? I mean, you can like a tweet. Sometimes people use that as a way to store information for later. So uh, you think about this platform in terms of how, how do you get more followers, right? Again, I can't say I'm some sort of expert here. I've just kind of bumbled my way through it. But basically, the key thing is you got you to tweet more. You actually use the platform to gain followers, right? Uh, but you also don't want to be the, that person that gives a, every five minutes an update on your life activities, right? Um, tweet more, but tweet interesting stuff to actually engage the folks or ask questions or engaging, right? If that's the... the the route you take, um, following others, right, and getting getting that engagement with others by actually um, when it when it makes sense to communicate with folks and have two way communication. So I think that's one of the key things with Twitter is at least when your account's small enough that you can have those conversations with people and people from all over the world, which is super interesting. Um, and I think a lot of times, you know, people are hesitant to get on these social media platforms because they hear so many horror stories of basically abuse and uh, people being quite mean. And that's definitely a risk and can be a problem with these type of platforms. Um, but I also find that sometimes when you put, you put good energy out there, you tend to get good energy back in terms of how people engage with you on these social media platforms. Uh, but when that doesn't work, there also are blocking and mute functions, which I think are great. Um, so this example here I've just shown of, uh, of a tweet of, you know, it's a little bit tongue in cheek, right, of, of thinking about cattle as uh, producing plant-based beef and using all these little emojis here. And I have some uh, followers who are uh, people who are very, very strongly view, you know, all animal use is bad, right, which is fine, respect that. Um, but they sometimes write, you know, <laughs> I'm sure negative things under each one of the things that I tweet, which is fine. However, I mute their accounts, so I can't even see what they write, right? So that's what that little that little thing down there is of saying, hey, this tweet isn't available because you muted them. So I find that to be the simplest strategy is then you just don't even see what they write and you know just kind of go on with life and let them scream out into the void about what they're upset about. It's fine, right? So um, just kind of wrapping this up, right? When we think about this whole idea of, of social media engagement or trying to communicate, 
I guess I would put this slide up here as, as a challenge to all of us within animal agriculture is, you know, we, we care about communicating with each other, or if we think about scientific communication specifically, you know, publishing and, and communicating to our peers. But I think one of the key things is to think about, you know, whether it's in an academic setting or in industry or government, whatever the, 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 the audience or the uh, communicators may be, um, or where, what community they're from, we need to think about how do we how do we view the the risk reward, and how do we view um, encouraging people to try to reach outside of the animal agriculture bubble? Because I think we all know that we're we're excellent at communicating to each other, but a lot of these again public square debates require uh, information to get outside of that bubble, right? And again, you may you may not change people's minds. You need to be specific as to what your goals are of communicating, um, but it's important that we are all a little bit more transparent about there is risk to doing this, but if you don't do it, you're never going to reach those audiences, right? And so thinking about those um, incentive structures, and I've put this here purposely almost more for academia, right? Of how do we reward people, but then also provide a little bit of protection for folks that are going into these more controversial topics. And really just a bottom line, right, when we think about animal scientists, animal nutritionists, people in animal agriculture in general, these are folks that have a lot of expertise that's really important to inform a lot of the public conversations that are going on. And I, I use that word inform rather than educate, right? Education, saying you're going to educate people can sometimes be a little bit condescending, right? But just providing that information is really, really key for folks so they can do with what they may, right? Um, take that into their consideration of their process. Um, but that's really important is that we have people that have animal agriculture understanding actually engaged in these conversations, right? Um, it may be you just do face-to-face -face conversations, you speak at your, your local Lions Club meeting, whatever it may be. That's a very worthy and excellent form of communication. You don't have to get into the fray of social media. But I think the key thing is that... Um, you know, if you're too afraid to engage and if you don't speak up, then it's pretty clear that you'll have no influence, right? <laughs> if you try to do it, you will have a, bit, a better chance of actually having a, an impact there in terms of providing information for folks. Um, and I think the other key thing, uh, this is just stating the obvious, right? Respectful communication is, is key. A lot of times, especially when a, whether it's in person or on social media, sometimes the the biggest folks that you're influencing or the most important folks you're influencing are those that are observing the conversation, not even who you're having that conversation with, right? Um, so being being uh, being uh, respectful can go a long ways, right, in terms of representing the industry well um, in a conversation, get, leaving people that are observing that conversation feeling good about where you're coming from and, and knowing that you're a, a good person from that standpoint. So the key thing there is just um, I would I would always say this of folks in animal agriculture, I would say, hey, it is important to engage. You don't have to engage in all these social media platforms, but again, even if it is just locally or in those conversations or even at the Thanksgiving dinner table with, with folks in the family that aren't in animal agriculture, I think it's important to provide um, that evidence and provide that information for folks. But again, just realizing that what your goals are is important. You can't just treat people as an empty vessel and just hit them with a bunch of facts and expect them to change their mind, right? None of us per se do that as, as people. Um, so keeping in, in mind, again, those relationship aspects and the trust aspect is the most important thing when you're going to have successful communication. And 
hopefully that's intuitive. That's that's true in our personal lives in addition to uh, these societal conversations. So with that, thank you very much for this uh, kind of brief overview of science communication and happy to take questions. Well, I hope that gave you some food for thought. Thank you, Sarah, for the information. Remember, keep your questions for the end and we'll go through them after we do this second webinar presentation. I'm going to now introduce our second speaker, Jude Capper. Jude is a PhD and DSC and the recipient of an assessment research grant. She has two roles. She is the ABP Chair and Professor of Sustainable Beef and Sheep Production at Harper Adams University in the UK and is also an independent livestock sustainability consultant. Jude's research focuses on sustainability of ruminant production systems. She is the treasurer of the National Beef Association, a liveryman of the Worshipful Company of Butchers, and holds a chair and vice chair post for panels at the Institute for Apprenticeships and Technical Education. She is active on social media, primarily aiming to debunk myths relating to livestock production. I just want to say for those listeners in our first webinar, the morning here in the East Coast, is that Jude is unable to join us for questions, but encourages you to submit any questions that I will retain and ask in tonight's presentation. You'll be able to either catch up with them at the end of the presentation or listen to them on the recording after I've compiled all of them. So without any more yakking, I will switch over to Jude's presentation. Thanks. Hello, everybody. My name's Jude Kapper. I'm a livestock sustainability consultant and also professor and ABP chair of sustainable beef and sheep production at Harper Adams University. I'd like to thank AMTS for the invitation to present on this webinar. And I'm also very pleased to be presenting with Dr. Place, who's an um, amazing scientist in her own right. It's really nice to be talking about this today because I think sometimes we get so focused on the technical aspects of sustainability that we sort of don't stop and think about how we're going to communicate that outside our industry. And I think that's going to be a really key component for all of us as we move on, no matter what we play within our industry. And one of the main messages that I'd like to pass back to you from this webinar is that there is no definitive sustainable system. There's no one size fits all. So it doesn't matter whether you've got housed pigs or Jersey cows in a system in New Zealand or Highland cattle in um, a mountainous region of Scotland. There is no one size fits all. There is no if you just have this breed or this herd size or this type of system, you will be sustainable. So instead, we've got to find ways that every system can be sustainable. And that means balancing three things, economic viability, environmental responsibility and social acceptability. And it's that social acceptability component that I'm going to talk about today, because, you know, as I said um, in my introduction, that often gets forgotten when we focus so hard on what we can do on farm. But while we've made some amazing changes all over the world over the years, I think the really important bit is how do we then talk about that to policymakers, to consumers, to retailers and to everybody in the world. 
So one of the issues that we really have to face is that we face a, a lot of opposition. We see a, a lot of activist groups putting out really good social media posts. So, for example, this is an um, image from Instagram. It's actually part of a short video that's hosted on that platform. It's by a account called Get Plant Ed, which is a um, plant-based account, obviously in favour of plant-based foods versus animal agriculture. And it's catchy. They've got um, rather beautiful graphics. It's a really simple message. There's a bit of a blurb on the right-hand side that goes with the video. And we've really got to be better in our industry at communication, at talking to the consumer, about putting out simple messages. And that's really difficult sometimes when we can often feel really under threat by a, a lot of either misinformation or information that's taken out of context. So often when we see infographics like this one, again, this, this came from Instagram from a plant-based food account called Simple Happy Kitchen. It's shown the carbon footprint of various foods, and these are based on some kind of science, although it's notable that there's no citation for these numbers at the bottom. But it's showing the carbon footprint in terms of kilos of carbon per thousand calories. And that's fine for food that we eat for calories, so simple energy. But if we look at most of these ones, going from nuts, peanut butter and lentils at the top to tuna, turkey, beef and lamb at the bottom, of course, the main thing that we want to get from these foods is protein. And so we really need to rethink how we think about carbon footprints. And one of the main things that I think we need to do is to start expressing carbon footprints, not just per kilo of protein, but per kilo of available protein or bioavailable amino acids, because when we do that, we will see a very different picture being communicated to the consumer in terms of the value of, for example, beef compared to, to tomatoes. The other um, issue that I have with these type of infographics, they're very beautiful, they're well done, they're very easy to understand, but food production is regional. And yes, of course, we import some foods. So here in the UK, for example, we obviously have to import chocolate, we have to import coffee, we have to import bananas, but most of the beef that we eat here has been produced in the UK and there's no global average beef or global average lamb. So to take the supposition that beef at the bottom here and the global average beef emits 13.8 kilos of carbon per thousand calories is utterly meaningless. So when we're talking to the consumer about the foods that they eat, we've got to make allowances and give accurate numbers for the food that people are actually consuming in that country, not just try to apply some kind of global average, because that simply doesn't make sense. And as I said, we often feel in our industry, I think, that the whole world's going vegetarian, the whole world's going vegan, and there's a lot of really clever marketing out there, which does seem to promote that idea. But are we actually seeing a whole whole scale shift to vegetarian and vegan diets? And I'd argue that we're not necessarily, but the people who are making that shift are very excited about it, they're very passionate about it, and they're talking about it far more than all the people out there who are just going about their their normal lifestyle and their normal work. And this is exemplified, I think, by the Veganuary campaign that's emerged over the world in the last few years. So if we look back at Veganuary for 2022, for example, this year was a record year and um, 
582,538 participants signed up. And if you haven't heard about this campaign, basically people pledge to go vegan for the month of January. And it's perfectly placed, of course, because it's after Christmas. People are feeling they've eaten too much, they've drunk too much. They want to be better in the new year. They're going to make their resolutions, they're going to be fitter, they're going to go on a diet, you know, everything's going to be better. So having this sort of lifestyle change pledge at the beginning of the year is really, really clever. Now, note that I, that I say that 582, 538 people signed up. That doesn't mean, of course, that 582,000 people were still doing it by the end of the month. And what we don't have is data on how many of those people kept it going for the whole month or even into the future as well. But again, to put it into context for people, because 582,000 people is over half a million people. That's an awful lot of people. But in context, in the UK, for example, this is slightly smaller than the population of Sheffield, which is a relatively small city in northern England. It isn't tiny, but equally it isn't the size of Los Angeles, New York, Paris, for example. So in context, even in the UK, if all of these people were based in the UK, it would still comprise less than 1% of the UK population. Now, of course, they aren't there across the world, as I say, 582,000 people all across the world. So on average, per participating country, and there's about 200 countries participating now, that's an average of 2,787 people per country. And I tried to find some kind of hobby or pastime where you'd only get that many people playing that game or participating in that activity per country. And even the really sort of niche things like Quidditch out of Harry Potter has more people playing than that. So over the world, it's a really small proportion of people. But, but what I thought was perhaps most interesting was that 62% of the people that signed up to Veganuary were already vegan, vegetarian or pescatarian, i.e. they don't eat feet, um, meat but they do eat fish. So I thought that was really interesting because if you are already vegan, for example, and you pledge to go vegan for a whole month, that's just life as normal, you know. That's like me pledging to eat cheese because I love cheese. So I think sometimes we have to think about the bigger picture and, and just have the data put into perspective a bit to see whether this is whole scale change or change by a relatively small proportion of people across the world. Now, this paper came out just before um, COVID hit, basically. It came out in spring 2020 and it was the first paper at the time which had um, put all of our consumer lifestyle choices into context. So it had done a meta-analysis looking at all the papers out there that had quantified what would have an impact on cutting an individual person's carbon footprint. So you can see the top 10 here. Living car free had the biggest impact, battery cars, one less long haul flight per year, renewable energy, you know, so on and so on, down to the, um, taking on a vegan diet down there at number seven. Now, bearing in mind this was now published over two years ago, if um, some of the new science relating to global warming potential star, for example, and carbon sequestration had been taken into account in the papers that were looked at in this paper, I suspect that the impact of a vegan diet would would have been even 
lower down that list. And it's interesting to note that when this paper came out, I looked at the top one and went, living car free, nobody could do that. And then we went into lockdown for months and months and months. So I think one thing, one possible um, positive thing that COVID has shown us is that we can make changes to our fuel use and obviously that's having a huge impact across the world at the moment as fuel prices rise. But again we've got to put things into context for people and I'm a complete data nerd, I love numbers, I love being able to see the impact of things in, in ways that I can understand. So what I did a couple of years ago was to look at the impacts of um, flying compared to drinking milk. So the average annual UK consumption of milk is about 70 litres of liquid milk per person. And, and according to um, some national data that we've got, the average, again the average, but the average carbon footprint per litre of milk in the UK is just over 1.1 kilos of carbon dioxide equivalents per kilo of milk. So if you fly from London Heathrow, which is one of our major airports, to Paris, which is a relatively short flight, according to a carbon of flight calculator, that's going to emit roughly about 200 kilos of carbon. Or instead, you could drink 216 litres of milk, which of course is just over three years consumption for the average person. Now, fairly obviously, the further you fly, so from London to Moscow, London to New, to New York, or all the way to London to Sydney, the higher the carbon footprint per passenger. So this isn't per plane, this is per passenger on that flight. So, for example, just before we went into lockdown the first time with COVID, I um, flew to and from Sydney, which had a carbon footprint of just over 6,000 kilos of carbon for that flight per passenger. But that would be equal instead to drinking 5,169 litres of milk. And when we put it into that context, it just shows just how those impacts add up. Because even though as a scientist, I was very well aware that every flight I took had some carbon impact, I would have never known that that was equal to 5,169 litres of milk, i.e. years and years and years of average annual consumption of milk. And we've got to put these things into context for people, because if we say things like, well, if you take that flight, that's equal to over 6,000 kilos of carbon, you know, no one knows what that means. Is, is that high? Is that low? Do I just plant one tree or 50 trees? We have to put all of our daily lifestyle choices into context for people to help them understand the impacts of their choices. But again, we do have a, not a conflict here, but a challenge here, and that most of the choices that people make when they're thinking about going vegetarian or vegan relate to guilt, and that's a prime motivator. So this was a um, report that came out from YouGov in 2019 now. The question they asked is, is the future of food a flexitarian? And of the people who were already flexitarian, i.e. making a conscious decision to eat less meat, or people who were thinking of giving up meat, 66% of them said, yes, I feel guilty when I eat meat and dairy products compared to only 25% in the national population. So that guilt factor that, oh, I'm going to eat this, but I feel like I shouldn't be because of the animals, because of the planet, 
because my health factor is really difficult to overcome with facts and figures and data. So we've got to be better at overall communication with people. So in the same paper, they asked people, well, why? You know, what are your major concerns? Which of these factors might encourage you to adopt either a vegan or a vegetarian diet? And this is um, this is a trend that we see across the world. And as you can see, animal welfare, the healthiness of the product for them. So the healthiness of a pork chop being eaten by a person, for example, and the impacts on the environment are the biggest things that would make people go vegetarian or or to go vegan. So that means we have an opportunity there to talk more, to communicate better, to, to help people understand the things that we're doing in our industry that uh, can improve all of these things to hopefully um, dampen down that guilt factor just a little bit. And we have changed over time, obviously, an awful lot. And I really like this cartoon because I think it does exemplify many of the people that I see in the cities across the UK. Because we've evolved and we've got better and our diets have changed and our housing has changed. And now we seem to spend all of our time on our phones. And that's really good in terms of having access to information at our fingertips. But that's if it's balanced, if it's scientific, if it's based on evidence. And that's not always the case. And as humans, we are a little bit like sheep in the in the way that we make decisions about controversial um, issues. And unfortunately, choosing milk, choosing meat can by some be thought to be a controversial issue nowadays. So when we um, think about something, so do I buy the milk or the plant-based alternative? Do I buy the tofu or the broccoli or the beef? We've got four major processes going on in the back of our minds. And I'm going to go through these relatively quickly, but with um, relevance to animal agriculture. So we've got bad news bias, bounded rationality, confirmation bias, and cultural cognition. And all of those feed in on a subconscious level to help us to make decisions about what we buy, what we eat, what we choose. So in terms of bad news bias, you know, this is where I say we're a little bit like sheep. We're drawn to bad news. And honestly, I think that's why many of the tabloid newspapers still exist, because we're drawn to bad news headlines, you know. So, for example, again, we've got an infographic here from a um, Instagram account called Meatless Mondays, Livestock production uses 75% of the Earth's agricultural land. It's bad news. That makes people go, oh my goodness, that's appalling. You know, what else could we do with that? Livestock's so inefficient, so wasteful. And so to overcome this, there's a lot of a social science work that shows that we need five positive stories out there to cancel every negative one. So for every negative video clip that shows animals being abused or a farmer doing something that they absolutely should not be doing. And I need to make it very clear that we should never condone anything that isn't good practice. But where we see those clips, where they occur, we've got to have five positive stories out there to overcome that, to give that consumer confidence in someone did something wrong somewhere, but I know that most farmers would never do that. So we have to have more positive stories out there to overcome, unfortunately, the few bad apples. But as I say to people outside agriculture, there goes 75% of the Earth's agricultural land. That's so much land just for livestock. It's crazy, it's wasteful, it's inefficient. 
Well, I'm speaking to you today from the UK perspective, but here in the UK, over 65% of our agricultural land isn't suitable for growing arable crops. So we can't grow barley on it. We can't grow oats on it. We can't grow corn on it but we can use it for grazing livestock and, and possibly the best use of that land, which is too dry or too steep or too rocky or too, too infertile to grow anything else is to put cattle on to it, to put sheep onto it, to produce food from land where otherwise we can't grow anything else. But again, to communicate that to the consumer can be quite challenging because, for example, if we just look at total land use so the total height of the bars that you can see on this graph you can see that beef and lamb which are the second third fourth fifth and sixth bars have much higher land use in in total so upland lamb so lamb produced on the hills in the uk for example uses about 27 hectares of land per ton of protein again to people outside agriculture that's inefficient, that's wasteful, we could do something else with that land. Except that we can't with the vast majority of that land, because if we break the bars down into the green bars, which are grassland versus arable land in the yellow, you can see that for, for the vast majority of land used for upland and lowland beef and lamb, and even for dairy beef as well, that's grassland, that isn't arable land. So it's not land that we can do anything else with apart from a grazing livestock. And when I've had the conversations with people about this and said, but it's rocky, it's steep, it's hilly, we can't plough it, we can't get to it with a tractor, they go, oh yeah, so the only thing you can do with it is to put cattle and sheep on it. I go, yeah, absolutely. But we've got to have these conversations. We've got to make it understandable to the consumer. Now, the other thing that we have to think about is that often in the popular media, we see claims like, well, if you're going to eat meat, you should probably eat pork and poultry because they're more feed efficient than ruminant animals. And that's absolutely true. And I'm not at all going to bash pork and poultry. But this um, graph that I show you here came from a really interesting paper out of the UK, came out in 2011 now, so it's relatively old. But what Wilkinson did was to redefine the, the efficiency of feed use. So rather than just looking at feed efficiency for different um, types of livestock in terms of kilos of feed in and kilos of output, milk, meat or eggs out, he looked at the edible protein, either human edible protein, I should say, in the feeds for all of these animals compared to the human edible protein coming out in, again, milk, meat and eggs. And so when we take out all of the components of animal feed that we can't eat, so pasture and hay and byproducts and so on and so on, we can see both that dairy and suckler, i.e. grass-based beef in the UK, actually gives out more edible protein than it ever takes in. So the ratio is positive, which are the two blue bars. And in contrast to, to the traditional measures of feed efficiency, where we'd see about a ratio of about seven to one for feed inputs versus outputs for cereal beef, for example, you can see that when we take out all of the components of the feed that humans can't eat, cereal beef, pork, poultry and eggs are actually relatively similar in terms of 
edible protein input versus output. So we've got to redefine not just the metrics that we use for carbon, but also the metrics that we use for feed efficiency as well to make it far more meaningful to the consumer. And we've got to have simple, quick messages. And some of the activist groups are very good at that. And we've got to be better. So this is one that I particularly liked. It actually came out from Twitter and it came from the um, levy board for beef and lamb in Wales. And it's just a simple, pretty little infographic. You've got some nice cartoons there of people in the gym. It says based on the UK average diet, 30% of our protein intake comes from red meat, vital for our body's growth, maintenance and muscle recovery. It's simple, it's easy to understand and it would hopefully inspire people to eat more um, animal-based foods. So it's a really positive story but again it's simple and quick. People don't have the time to read every single research paper or to go and find a book or something. We've become a population where we want the simple quick answer and so we've got to be better at communicating that rather than giving people lots and lots and lots of essays and papers and science as well. Now having said that everything that we do as an industry absolutely has to be science and evidence-based and this was a really interesting paper it came out of Sweden um, over 10 years ago now but they did what at the time was really revolutionary and they looked at different drinks in terms of their carbon footprint but also their nutrient density because back in the UK about 15 years ago now some of the major supermarket chains were putting carbon footprint labelling onto their products but again there was no context there was no comparisons so here for example we've got uh, eight different beverages going from milk at the top orange juice some plant-based alternatives and then some alcoholic drinks and you can see as we go down the list from milk at the top to water at the bottom the nutrient density goes down so whole milk has a value of 53.8 orange juice 17.2 soda beer and water at zero and then on the, on the um, further side of the table, you can see the carbon footprint. So you can see that milk is sort of intermediate, 99 grams per 100 grams of drink, compared to the highest, which was red wine at 204, and the lowest was water at 10. And you can see that, that to be fair, the plant-based alternatives, soy juice and oat juice, have low carbon footprints at 30 and 21. But the really interesting thing that these guys did was then to represent that as an index. So we've basically got an index here of nutrient density over greenhouse gas emissions. So how much nutritional bang do you get for your carbon buck, as it were? So the higher the numbers, the bigger the bars, the better. Because yes, all of these um, beverages have some kind of carbon footprint, but of course we eat food and we drink beverages, generally speaking, for the nutrients. So milk in this example, for example, whole milk had a nutrient density to greenhouse gas emissions index of 0.54, and that's double that of orange juice. And despite the low um, greenhouse gas emissions for both the soy drink and the oat drink, they also have almost no nutrients in them. So they have relatively low indices. So again, it's a, it's a question of what are the most appropriate metrics to tell the story to the consumer and per kilo is relatively meaningless compared to given that you eat food to get nutrients what's the best way to get those nutrients while trying to lower your carbon footprint at the same time. So coming on to confirmation bias now and this is basically we all have inherent 
beliefs that we base our choices on. So we may inherently believe that product A is better than product B, that food A tastes better than food B, that practice A is more caring or, or more cruel than practice C. So just to give an example here, the picture on the left is um, my actual um, Twitter and Instagram um, profile picture. It's me feeding a beef calf on a ranch in Montana. It's about 10 years ago now. Um, I'm feeding that calf. Um, hopefully not surprisingly to any of us because the um, dam had died and obviously they wanted the calf to survive. So I thought it was quite a nice picture, you know, it's quite a cute calf, you know, it's relevant to our industry. But I was really quite shocked, frankly, when a lot of activists looked at that picture and went, oh my goodness, she's she's torn the calf from its mom, she's force feeding it milk, it's exploitative. I'm like, I'm just trying to help it survive, you know, surely this is a positive thing. So how we look at an image or a picture or a bit of information is very much based on our preconceived ideas. And if we're pro-agriculture, we're pro-animal welfare, we're pro-calf health, for example, I would hope that we would see this as a caring picture. But if we're against animal agriculture, if, if we're against milk and meat production, then we may well see it as cruel. So we've always got to think about our audience. And whenever we put out a picture or a video clip or a bit of information, just have a sort of stop and double check moment. You know, we would hope the industry sees this in a positive way. We'd see, hope that consumers who don't have fixed ideas about agriculture would see it in a positive way. But how would those opposed to us see it? And almost how can this be used against us? So we have to have that in the back of our mind at all times, which is a sad fact, but it's all part of effective communication. And then lastly, with regards to the ways that we think about and things. Cultural cognition is the final one and this is where we really are unfortunately a little bit like sheep because as humans we tend to trust people who who impress us, who we want to be like, who we share values with. So we trust our friends, we tend to trust our families depending on our families and we trust famous people. So regardless of their education or their science background or their lack of, people who are famous, some of the famous celebrities, for example, like Lewis Hamilton or Taylor Swift, make a huge impact on many, many, many people when they make dietary choices. But we can use that in a positive way too. So if we're talking about rugby, for example, you've got the England prop here, Joe Marler. This is quite old now. It um, again came out about um, six or eight years ago now. But we have a huge um, Six Nations rugby competition every year, which is global. And uh, he broke his leg three weeks before that competition, but was back playing in that competition. And he attributed that extremely rapid recovery to drinking two pints of whole milk every single day, which apparently he still does and he's still playing now. So we've got to have better sort of famous voices out there, people who are not part of the industry, but who are prepared to talk up for the industry and to help educate that. And again, on a global basis, I'm sure that some of you will have seen the Clarkson's Farm um, TV series on, uh, I can't remember now whether it's Netflix or Amazon, but um, Jeremy Clarkson, the famous sort of car um, pundit um, who's taken over a farm and is is making some interesting commentaries on farming and how to do or possibly not to do that. And we need more people like that out um, talking on behalf of, of our industry. 
because ultimately, as with any issue or problem or or a bit of information, we've got a polarised sort of society, but it does follow this normal curve. So on one side, we've got the very angry people, you know, meat is murder, milk is really bad, you shouldn't eat animal foods, you know, rant, 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 rant. And on the other end, we have the very happy, I love milk, I love meat, I love cheese, I'm really happy about farming, it's brilliant. But in the middle, we've got everybody else, everybody outside agriculture, everybody who's just saying, I just want to be told what to eat. I just want to make the right choices for me and my family and the planet and the animals. And I don't know what to choose because there's so much information and so much conflicting information. And we have to be aware that, you know, even though most of us on this call are immersed in agriculture, there's an awful lot of things that people don't know that we shouldn't be surprised by. So for example, this was a picture on Twitter a couple of years ago now, and it was during February dairy, which in February most years and um, people try to celebrate dairy production. And this um, image was put out by a um, person who was very much opposed to animal agriculture. I've blanked out the um, bad language they used on this tweet with that little grey box. Um, but it's a quite emotive picture. There's a little calf there. It's obviously in a calf crush. And the caption is, this calf is about to be killed with a bolt gun. Now, for anybody who's not aware, that's not a bolt gun. That's a dehorning tool. So that calf is having that applied to it to um, basically kill the horn bud so that calf doesn't grow horns. It's not something that you could kill a calf with unless you did something very, very odd with it. And without wanting to be too gruesome, that's also not the place where you would shoot a calf to kill a calf anyway. So in all ways, that picture is complete and utter nonsense. But to anybody outside ag agriculture, there's a thing that looks a bit like a gun being held to a calf's head. You know, nobody outside agriculture goes, well, that's not true, because simply put, we haven't communicated well. People don't understand agriculture. There's such a big gap between those of us in agriculture and those of us not. And that's something we really need to overcome going forwards to have a sustainable future for our industry, i.e. the economics, the environment, but the social as well, all being in balance. So finally, these are my top tips for positive communication. And, you know, I'm aware that I've effectively talked at to you for about 32 minutes now. So it seems a little ironic, but in, and I cannot honestly say this is based on science and focus groups and interviews and et cetera, et cetera. This particular bit, I can't reference other than when I've talked about it in a peer review paper, because this is based on personal um, experience of the things that have worked and the things that have done um, that haven't, and particularly on social media where I'm, you know, particularly active. But in that um, space, I found that five things are really, really important. And the first one, beyond anything else, is to share your values because we've all got things in common with other people. We always do, even if we seem diametrically opposed. Different countries, different races, different diets, different sports, different lifestyles, there's always something that we have in common, like we want animals to be well treated or we want the planet to be a healthier place. So sharing your values is the most important, you know, as a person who cares about animals, as a person who loves cheese, as a person who is a parent or a grandparent or, or has, 
nieces and nephews, as a person who loves American football or English rugby, you know, this is why I feel passionately about this. And then always stay positive, polite and personal. And I wish I didn't have to see to um, say that bit, but we see so many tweets or messages or clips where people are abusive and angry and unpleasant. You know, don't be that person. Keep it polite. End with, thanks very much. We're obviously not going to agree, but, you know, have a nice day. Simple as that. And we've got to keep it short, simple and see through. And this is where I always have to laugh at myself because I've obviously given you an awful lot of information in the last half an hour. But two people are outside agriculture who, for no fault of their own, in fact, it's probably our fault, don't understand the things that go on every single day on farm. If someone asks a question, keep the answer short. Allow it to lead to more questions and a proper conversation. Don't go, well, here's another thing and another thing and another thing. and I can talk to you for hours. You know, make it a dialogue, make it a conversation, not just an overload of this is everything that I know about issue X. Otherwise, we lose that conversation. And focus both on the important questions, but also the important people that I've got a bit of a reputation for fighting with um, activists on Twitter. And it doesn't do anyone any good because I am not going to change my mind and they're not going to change their mind. You know, they are not going to go and eat a beef burger because I say that they should. And I'm certainly not going to go vegan because they say I should. Now, having said that, bear in mind that whenever you have any conversations on social media, there are other people looking at that conversation, looking in. And so that's why we can get information out there and change people's minds on the out on the outside of those conversations sometimes without directly um, interacting with them, but still try, you know, again, I'm a hypocrite, but try not to fight with too many people on Twitter because ultimately it's just a waste of time to argue with people. We're not going to get our messages through. And possibly most importantly, know when to walk away. I've seen too many people who've had really hurtful comments on Twitter, myself included. Um, people can be very vile when they don't have to do it face to face and they're safely behind a computer screen. And so, you know, please always put the phone down, put the computer down, you know, walk away. Know that you don't have to answer every question. You don't have to be in every conversation and you don't have to put up with people being really, really unpleasant. So with that, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. You've got a, my email address here and a copy of the presentation will be at the presentation link you can see there. Um, I apologise, I won't be on the first uh, earlier in the day Q&A session, but if there are any questions that Sarah can't answer, which is probably none because she's absolutely brilliant, but if there are any, please feel free to email me at jcapper.harperadams.ac.uk and I will be there for questions on the second Q&A session of the day. So again, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. That completes the presentation portion of the webinar. Following an introduction of our next webinar and partner and sponsor thanking, I have added the morning question session. Due to a previous commitment, Dr. Capper was unable to join the question period in the morning presentation. Next month's webinar will be Dr. Joe McFadden, Associate Professor of Dairy Cattle Biology in the Animal Science Department of Cornell University, where he is the Northeast Agribusiness and Feed Alliance Sesquicentennial Faculty Fellow and involved with ProDairy. With his presentation, we'll be moving back to nutrition-related topics he will talk about dietary solutions to inhibit ruminal methanogenesis.
where are we now, where do we go next, and how do we get there? I am very fortunate to share this podium with some very wonderful co-hosts. This morning, I was joined by Dr. Hudai Kavustran of Zerv, who is also our Turkish distributor, and Dr. Bill Prokop, who subbed in for his partner, Elena Bonfante of Dairy Innovations. In the afternoon webinar session, I was joined by Sean Lee of AnsiTech and our Chinese distributor, and Paula Alanis, who substituted in for Paula Turilla, who is on a family vacation. I was joined by my AMTS team member, Lynn Gilbert, who assists me with managing the Facebook live stream and also contributes towards the question session. We do have wonderfully supportive sponsors who allow us to pay our speakers and help justify my time commitment to this project. We thank our gold sponsors, Arm & Hammer, Animal and Food Production, hashtag ScienceHearted, the Canola Council of Canada, learn more about feeding canola at canolamazing.com, Adina, experts in animal nutrition with expertise in plant bioactives, and Protesca, transforming the future of farm animal health. Our silver sponsors this year are the Forage Analysis Labs of Dairy Laboratory and Dairy One, both with affiliates around the world, Adiseo, Ruminant Nutrition Solutions to Ensure Animal Performance, and Novameal from Novita Nutrition. Our bronze sponsors are AminoMax, Virtus Nutrition, Origination Inc., Balchem, and Glucobest. Each of these companies support education and research worldwide. We hope that you consider them in your formulation decisions. Following is the morning question session. There we go. All right. All right. All right. So first of all, I want to thank both Jude and Sarah. And as Jude said, she will not be here this morning for questions. Morning my time. I'm sure it's other times for other people. But she will um, respond to some of the questions if they are specifically um, sent to her. So um, Sarah is here. Thank you so much, Sarah, for joining us. Um, just as a reminder, the, today's slides will be available as a PDF document. And I am going to, what I'm going to do right now is move to our end slides so that I can thank my co-hosts and thank my sponsors, because that is a necessary part of this whole process. Also, I want to thank, I want to alert you to our next um, webinar, but finishing up, just, I think Sarah um, would be kind enough to put her contact information in the chat window if she would like, um, or how people follow you. That would be terrific. I can also move back to her, um, her, her PowerPoint slide that shows that. Um, we also, not only do we record the presentation and process it for later listening, but we also turn them into podcasts which I'm a big listener of podcasts. I listen to them while I'm doing gardening, while I'm cleaning house, while I'm driving. Um, I find it's a good way to sort of passively get a little bit more information. We're going to follow with questions in a few min minutes, but I want to thank my team. This morning, I was joined um, by uh, Lynn Gilbert, AMTS team. Tom normally joins, but he was not able to. And if you'll look in your chat window right now, Sarah just put her contact information. Um, and Bill Prokop, who is our, um, who, who works with our distributor in Italy, Elena Bonfante, as part of, of Dairy Innovations team. He, he focuses in Italy, Hungary, and the U.S. We're 
also joined by Dr. Hudai Kavustrin, who had to leave earlier. So our next webinar will be Dr. Joe McFadden, which if any of you were at some of the recent meetings, you know that Joe is going to be heading up the team that will be working with the environmental cham chambers that are being installed at Cornell. That project's a little bit um, behind where he hoped it would be. So he's going to talk about dietary solutions to inhibit ruminal methanogenesis. Where are we now? Where do we go next? And how do we get there? So this is going to be a very, we're going back to a little bit more very nutrition focused webinar in the next one. Um, just to share with you, these are my co-hosts. And then let's thank these sponsors. We thank our gold sponsors, Arm & Hammer Animal and Food Production, hashtag Science Hearted, the Canola Council of Canada, learn more about feeding canola at canolamazing.com, Adina, experts in animal nutrition with expertise in plant bioactives, and Proteca, transforming the future of farm animal health. Our silver sponsors are the Forage Analysis Lab of Dairyland dairy Laboratories and Dairy One, both with affiliates around the world. Adiseo, Ruminant Nutrition Solutions to Ensure Animal Performance, and Nova Meal from Novita Nutrition. Our bronze sponsors are Amino Max, Virtus Nutrition, Origination Inc., Balchem, and Glucobest. Each of these companies support education and research worldwide. We hope you consider them in your formulation decisions. With that said, I will ask my co-host um, to unmute, say hello. Hello, Sarah, thank you for joining. Um, I have a couple questions. I'm going to do a sort of round robin and, and Bill, would you like to go first? You always have some particularly good insights. Why didn't I know you were gonna say that? Uh, <laughs> so um, I don't know how insightful I'll be, but first of all, uh, good morning, Sarah, this is Bill. Enjoyed your presentation. Um, very well done. One of the problems that I think all of us confront, and I, and I share this with producers when I speak, wherever it is, science whispers and ignorance screams volumes. And we are really up against ignorance in everything that we're trying to portray because people don't want to be bothered with science. They want something simple and easy. And if it can be tied to an emotional message that isn't factual, but compelling, they're going to align with it. And I think we've all experienced this, whether in the public forum or within family members, which is probably worse than the public forum in many ways. Um, and I enjoyed your recommendations in terms of how to address versus confront. Um, but it is so difficult, obviously, as you know, when people are so disconnected from our industry on so many levels that they have no understanding at all of what agriculture or animal agriculture is, obviously. And I think this is probably the challenge that we're up against because they're not learning it in school and any messages that they hear are negative. Um, I think something that we could do as a dairy industry, and that's my area, um, is perhaps to connect the milk carton um, and the producer with the consumer with more graphics of the farms, of the family, of information about the farm and where this milk came from and, and showing pictures that would give a positive reinforcement with pictures of calves and, and such that the right way. Um, 
and uh, I don't think that would be misleading because Lord knows there's plenty of splatter of the minority that do a terrible job in the industry. I, I think we need to do a better job of just routinely connecting the consumer with conscientious dairy production. Anyway, um, again, I really appreciated what you said and, um, you know, uh, open to your thoughts. Yeah, those are good comments, Bill. And I think um, for sure those kind of more formal ways of communicating, whether it is kind of through more traditional campaigns can definitely be effective. But I also think that's where <clears throat> the beauty of social media can kind of come into play. And there's plenty of examples just within the dairy industry of folks that, you know, relatively, I say relatively <laughs> less uh, or low time investment and uh, um, cheaply are able to use tools like Facebook, like um, obviously things like TikTok and just quickly share videos of what they're doing on the farm, make it entertaining, draw people in, right? So there's, there's great examples of, uh, um, you know, Derek Josie out in, in Oregon, who's uh, goes by the Tillamook Dairy Farmer, right, or Honest Farming or whatever he's rebranded himself as. Some of those folks have, have done a good job and they just show things as they are, right? I think that's one of the things that um, the traditional outreach of animal agriculture has sometimes kind of shot ourselves in the foot, right? Like the, the milk carton uh, comment that you made, right? We, we still often use a lot of traditional imagery and I grew up on a dairy with the, the big red barn and all that, right? But obviously most milk production is not happening in that type of environment now. There's nothing wrong with that. And uh, I think it's pretty amazing, right? All the processes that go into modern dairy production. <clears throat> but when people see the contrast between marketing materials and then what a real farm looks like on, on working day to day, they can feel like that disconnect is, is somehow we're trying to hide something, right? So it's, it's always that balance between being transparent, showing things as they are, but also not information overload, right? Because it's easy to share things with people um, that can be taken out of context. And I think Jude had some great examples there, right? Of images that if people have no context as to what these images mean, can be misconstrued in all sorts of ways, right? So. Absolutely. Yeah, there's there's no perfect answer there, but I think that the key thing is just more of it, more um, concerted effort and deliberate effort there. But I think somehow the message that agriculture has to be niche in order to be valid in the mind of the consumer when there are family farms that are 3,000 cows now, right? And, and yeah. that's where we've gone. And I think that that's the kind of message that we've got to explain. And in fact, as you're probably well aware, many of these larger operations do a better job with animal well-being. I, I avoid the term animal welfare because it has, to my mind, it's a negative connotation. But they do a better job with animal well-being than some of the more antiquated farms that don't have no, no longer have the margins, the resources to do what they would like to do to keep up, you know. And so, um, you know. Uh, and the other thing that I, I think is, is glaringly lacking, or maybe it's my lack of social media uh, adeptness, but, you know, we, we talk about almond milk, you know, and 
we don't see the ads that say, if you really enjoy almond milk, thank a cow, because if it weren't for cattle, this industry wouldn't exist because cattle are, are where we shove all the byproducts to make that almond milk profitable. And same with distillers, which is obviously 10 years ago was reported to be a ridiculous um, failure in terms of carbon uh, efficiency. It's actually less efficient than gasoline for the same energy use uh, in, in terms of total life cycle analysis, which is what we don't get out there as a message because the public does not think critically or analytically or certainly in systems. They just want a one word answer that makes them feel good. Right. And so. Yep. And yeah, Bill, I think those are great examples. And I obviously didn't include that in this presentation because it's more about the communications piece. But I think uh, some of the simplest ways to communicate that is, is again, putting it in terms that people are going to interact with on a day to day basis. Right. So they're not going to think about the ins and outs of a farm. And production, right? And again, we can we can take a step back and say, you know, we don't need to understand how these computers are working right now that we're right. interacting with, right? All we need to know is the outcome. And I think that's kind of the 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 place where we sometimes stumble in agriculture is making sure we talk about the outcomes in ways that connect with people as to what they care about, right? So your example earlier of welfare, right? It's it's bringing up that example of, you know, what's awesome about the dairy industry today is we have people that specialize in cow care, right? They're professionals. That's all they do. That's all they live and breathe every single day is focusing on this, right? And just making sure people understand in the terms that they care about, right? They're, they're mostly thinking about animals in terms of their cat and dog. And so there's always that kind of mental leap for folks today, that have Absolutely. been removed from agriculture because they're viewing animal use through companionship and pets, right? And so it's, it's that tricky dance right there. Um, and your example of almond holes, that's a great example too of just framing it up as, hey, you know, as you walk through the grocery store, there's so many products right on the shelf that are actually connected in their supply chains you may have no idea. In, in today's world <laughs> where supply chains are the front of mind for a lot of folks, I think that's an effective way to talk about it, whether it's almond milk connected to milk or orange juice connected to milk, right? Or people's cotton no. t-shirt being connected to ruminant agriculture or beer being connected to ruminant agriculture, right? Brewer's grains. There's so many fascinating examples there. And I also think it helps deflate this kind of us versus them mentality of plant-based versus animal agriculture, which is really just... At the end of the day, it's kind of silly, right? Because we're omnivores and our agricultural system needs both plants and animals, right? So yeah. I find that to always be super um, intriguing to people and it gets them kind of thinking about those connections um, for that subset of folks that are really interested, not the, not the folks that are just, just running from one thing to another because they got small kids and everything else, right? They may not have time to stop and sit down and think about some of this stuff. Yeah. Yes, um, Bill, Sarah, thank you both. Um, I think one of the comments made in one of the questions was, are there useful profiles and people that share scientific data? Um, I think Lynn and I will work on maybe getting a list and getting permission from some of those shares. You mentioned, um, oh golly, his name escapes me, the Jersey farmer out in Tillamook. Um, there's another guy in the Midwest who does a fantastic job. He's pretty confrontational with some of, and funny with, with some of the, the presentations, but 
you know, part of my goal here in this, this um, webinar was to give people some people to follow and also some ideas to maybe think on and do on their own. Because like I said, you and Jude and the people out there, you can't be expected to do all of the work. And I mean, if we don't have influencers, we won't have agriculture in the way that we know it. Know it. And I, Sarah, I don't know, do you know um, offhand what the percentage of family farms are in the U.S.? I think, you know, one of the takeaways from an earlier podcast on the field work was people equate big farms with bad farming. And I know for a fact, some of the biggest farms in my area in central New York are family operated, but right. they, people automatically see a lot of cows and they think it's factory farming and it's owned by big corporations. I grew up on one of those stereotypic 30 cow farms and our animal treatment was appalling. It was, I mean, there were things that were done by my grandfather, my brother, that just, I, I, I'm glad that cows are treated much better and are more comfortable and in better situations. We were in stanchion barns with wooden stanchions. Mm -hmm. um, to a lot of people, that looks idyllic. Um, mm -hmm. and, and we know it's not. Yeah, it, yeah, there's so much there, <laughs> Marianne, of like, yeah, one to your question of, of percent of uh, family-owned operations, or of course, as we know, right, a lot of uh, farms in the dairy industry and across segments of agriculture may be organized as corporations, but they're family-owned corporations, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's somewhere in the neighborhood of total across all farms, somewhere in the neighborhood of 98%, right, of all the 2.1 million farms in the U.S. are family-owned, right? Um, and it is also true, it's kind of that 80-20 rule, right? Roughly 80% of those actual number of operations are producing 80% of the output, right? 20% producing 80%. So I think the the reality is there is that we shouldn't be afraid of scale, right? Um, but agriculture is unique. One, it's, as, as I mentioned before, it's a little bit self-inflicted by how things have been marketed by food and beverage companies in the past of kind of this idyllic, romantic, agrarian ideal of the past. Um, but at the same time, food is just, it's different, right? Everybody is an eater. Um, everybody eats, everybody can view themselves as an expert versus as that, that example I gave earlier of, you know, how a computer works or how an iPhone works, right? We all may be users there, but we don't necessarily say, yeah, I know exactly how this thing is made, right? Or, or have strong feelings about it. Um, and so that's just one of the difficulties that we're dealing with. It is, it is agriculture. It is the culture part. It is the value judgments part that there is no single answer for, um, and I think, I think the key thing there is just to not run away from why do we do what we do in modern agriculture, right? It is because of quality control. It is because of focusing on the comfort of cows. Like we've learned a lot. We know and we, we know what to do more now, what the right thing is to do by the animal and right thing from an ethical standpoint, right? Um, and I think that's the key thing is just just reemphasizing that and just being very clear and not being afraid to have those conversations. I think that's the, hopefully the key thing that you took away from both my presentation and Jude's. It's like, if you don't engage, right, if we don't engage and don't have these conversations, then we know what's going to happen. 
right, is uh, it's going to be more of the kind of the misinformation and misrepresentation of the industry. And so it's, it's difficult, but it's that persistent and consistent communication and, and truly a two-way street of listening to what people's concerns are and trying to address those directly is the only way you're ever going to make progress in this space. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a question from Christian Kreuwagen down in South Africa. Uh, he says, thank you, first of all, for two great presentations. Regarding greenhouse gas emissions, emphasis was on CO2. What about methane? Um, Sarah, I, I don't I don't know if you had a chance to look at Frank Mittler's learner's production uh, or presentation last month. We did cover quite a bit of that, but do you want to speak to it? Yeah. So I think the other thing here is always, it can be tricky, right? Um, You know, sometimes these units of of greenhouse gas emissions, we say they're CO2 equivalents, right? And of course, what we're actually accounting for, especially when we talk about dairy production, is mostly methane and then nitrous oxide as well is actually the emissions that are coming from the production, but we express it as CO2 equivalents. Um, to the to the point of Frank's presentation, and he and I have we just have a publication that's in, in press now in Journal of Dairy Science, so hopefully be out soon. Um, building upon some of the stuff that he probably shared in that webinar about the short-lived nature of methane. And the simple reality with methane is it is a very potent greenhouse gas. It's also short-lived. So what that means from an implication of an accounting perspective, it's an opportunity and a threat (laughs) for the dairy industry in terms of emissions are increasing. Actually, our our warming impacts probably greater than is accounted for by traditional carbon dioxide equivalents. Um, But if we're able to reduce emissions, we're able to get to a point of no longer adding to warming or so-called climate neutrality a lot faster. So Methane is very important because of the enteric methane naturally produced from cattle, which you'll hear more about from Dr. McFadden next time. Um, And then also the manure methane piece. It's just the the single largest gas in the emission profile for dairy production, right? So um, how we account for it is very important. But the key thing is that if we're going to get to a point of climate neutrality, we need to reduce emissions, right? Mm -hmm. We need to reduce emissions, but emissions do not have to be zero methane emissions do not have to be zero to have no additional warming impact. And so that's a, that's a huge opportunity for the industry is enteric mitigation, manure mitigation, and coming up with the ways to actually document that progress and monetize, for, very importantly, monetize the reductions for dairy producers, right? Um, right. To make sure that we drive that, that forward. Right. I think um, that that is a key statement. If we are expecting dairy farmers to make these changes and, and do some steps towards mitigation, yet unwilling to to provide a premium, um, that that goes a long way if, if it were possible to assign a value to that and, and do so. Yeah. Yeah, I use that term. I think I use that term in this presentation, externalities, right? So this is always one of my frustrations in the sustainability space is that people will look at animal agriculture and say, look at, you know, the water quality or air quality or greenhouse gas emissions that are coming from the industry. We need to price those into the the product, right, to change things. Um, And honestly, it's like, that's that's fine if we want to. But again, the, the funds have to actually get back to the farmer, to implement new practices if that's what society desires, right? Mm -hmm. So a a thing I find very frustrating in the sustainability space is that um, a lot of these solutions just seem to roll downhill in the supply chain and end up on the 
you know, the primary producer, the, the dairy farmer, the crop farmer's lap. And, you know, there, <laughs> there's not a lot of ca- extra cash just laying around, right, to implement new capital investment um, strategies or do things that are going to increase your cost of production if you're not getting anything back from it, right? So I think that's just the key thing is as society, we need to say, if we care about climate change, then we're willing to put a price on carbon and actually pay for solutions. If not, then maybe maybe it's a little bit disingenuous all the conversation about you know how much we want to reduce emissions if we're not willing to actually pay the cost of doing so. Mm-hmm. Well, unfortunately, it may be too late when people decide they are willing to pay. Um, what are there studies that have been done that look at alternatives like almond juice, oat juice, those other productions that are viewed as milk replacements and, and obviously um, impossible meat, all of the meat replacements? Um, firstly, are they small family farms that we can all feel warm and fuzzy about, or are they big corporations? And secondly, are they? Um, are they viewed with what their emission cost is? Mm. Yeah, so I think it kind of is related to the, the point that Bill brought up earlier of one is these things are all connected in the supply chain, right? So of course the grand irony is a lot of almond farmers in California are also dairymen, right? Yeah. Uh, or historically <laughs> have been. Um, so those things can't really be pulled apart. There was also, there was a really nice article that came out last year in the Financial Times about, you know, this farmer in Nebraska that grows peas that potentially, you know, they end up in the supply chain for Beyond Meat. Um, and uh, when he wants to clean up his stubble in his field, uh, he brings out cattle to do it. Mm. <laughs> so yeah. I think one of the things is just kind of deflating deflating the grand narrative that these things are always in conflict and, you know, plants are better than animals and just kind of the ridiculousness of that, right? So that's one aspect of all this. Um, but what's related to that is typically assessments of environmental impact of these different products do not account well for these interlocking components of the food system, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So typically, if you're going to say this is the life cycle assessment of Beyond Meat or almond juice, production, you're not necessarily comparing the what if scenario of what if you, what if you took all uh, hamburger and you replaced it with meat alternatives, what would that actually do? And accounting for that, that relationship of, well, we actually need cattle, grazing cattle to help with soil health principles that we care about, right? And to get rid of byproducts and et cetera, et cetera, right? So typically when those type of analyses are done that actually look at what ifs, and look at consequences and not just compare two independent life cycle assessments, which assume the world is not going to change. That's very important. Um, When people do that, they don't realize they're comparing things that you should not look at what if scenarios in that case, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, And and you all, this group is probably quite familiar with the the work that Robin White and Mary Beth Hall did um, a few years ago in in the great paper they did as a follow-up just a couple of years ago on the dairy industry, right? perfectly highlights that example that if you start making big changes, it doesn't actually amount to much in terms of greenhouse gas emissions because you have to think about the consequences of getting rid of byproducts and of what are you going to do with all the cattle, (laughs) right? right? You know, we're going to have, we're going to have wild cattle running around everywhere or we're going to slaughter them all. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, 
I think the reality is, is that it's, it comes back to climate and these big issues. It's a very human, it's a very human reaction, right? This is a huge gnarly problem. Wouldn't it be awesome if all we had to do was just change how we eat and it can yeah. make a big impact, right? I think that make, hopefully that makes sense intuitively. That's why people find that attractive because that's like, man, that's an easy thing I can do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's always one of those things to keep in mind is that it's not just deflating people of like that actually doesn't matter, but think about the bigger picture, right? First, think about yourself and think about, are you getting adequate nutrition, right? A lot of these so-called replacements are not actually nutrient replacements, right? Um, and secondly, it's more about how we produce all food and get it to your plate and make that process better. You know, that omnivorous plate that most people are going to have, how do we improve the production practices across the board? So every bite of food you're eating has a lower impact in the future rather than trying to rearrange our plates and think that's making a difference. It's, it's in a lot of ways, it's kind of akin to rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, right? It's not going to make that much of a difference. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Sarah, I did put a link to the white paper that you authored with Frank up on last month's webinar. Um, I don't know if that, that is what you're speaking of that will be coming out. Um, but if anybody's interested in that information, go to the recording from Frank's webinar. Yep, that is, uh, we've adapted that to a peer review bub. Yep. Okay, perfect, perfect. Um, unless, Lynn, do you have any comments or questions you'd like to ask? Unless I get more questions in the chat window. Sarah, I'm not going to take up more of your time and we'll be talking to you tonight. Um, Bill, thank you so much for joining. I, I always enjoy when you come. Lynn, do you have any thoughts, questions, closing words? I really enjoyed um, both the presentations today. Thank you so much, Sarah, for putting this together. Um, I don't have any questions now, but I'm sure tonight there will be some more really thought-provoking questions coming through. Yep, yep. All right. Bill, thank you. You're welcome. Thank and, you, Sarah. And, thank you. Appreciate feel, it. Feel free to join tonight if you have nothing that you want to do. <laughs> and Sarah, thank you so much. Um, we will talk to you tonight. Everybody, thank you for attending. And following, we now have the afternoon recording session of the question period where we were joined by both Dr. Capper and Dr. Place, as well as Sean Lee and Paula Alanis. Hi, everybody. Hi Evening. Hi, hi. Jude, it's quite late for you, isn't it? Actually, looking at it, it's morning here now, just about, <laughs> but only just. <laughs> oh, dear. dear. Well, thank you for being such a, a good sport and joining us. Um, Sean, thanks for joining. And Paula, thank you for joining. I will move right into offering Sean the first spot on asking any questions that he might like to ask so that Paula can collect any translations that she needs to. Yeah. Um, hi, uh, uh, Sarah and Jude. This is Sean. Um, I'm a Chinese Canadian, so I live in Canada, but I run business in China. Um, the presentations, both of your presentations are excellent. Um, well, I just somehow, when you talk, I, had thinking, I was thinking more about COVID, less about uh, milk and the beef, which I should. 
Shame on me. Um, but uh, it's excellent information. Um, we always, as a, as a cow person, and uh, never did some research about this kind of information and social media. I learned a lot. <laughs> I don't really have a, a, a question, maybe just some comments. Um, the, this kind of new medium become so powerful and uh, especially the people who has uh, unproportionately uh, uh, influential large voice who are not uh, farmers who know little about farming agriculture and uh, they you know like uh, Hollywood uh, celebrities and uh, New York Times those you know writers who educated in a city, grew up in a you know, city and uh, in a world famous university and know nothing about the cows. <laughs> they, they, their voice is so strong and uh, it's, it's just frustrating when we see they, they intentionally set up a narrative and uh, coordinate and push and especially like lesson to this world famous journal they join together and um, seems to have some kind of agenda and uh, it's really frustrating but uh, your information is excellent i learned a lot and maybe we we, we for sure we help us to to navigate better and help us to spread spread more information to to help agriculture. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I would like to join Sean in, in my thanks of that. Um, I have a few questions that I, I would like to ask. Um, we did talk this morning, um, Sarah mentioned some of the um, dairy farmers, I guess, that are very active on social media. And I wondered um, what we'll try to do is it put up some of those accounts on this whole webpage. I encourage you to follow them. Sarah, I'm going to ask you, I get the name wrong because I don't go on Facebook that often. Um, and and, and um, I wonder if you might share with us the name of some of the, the social media people you know. I know there's a fellow that I follow on Twitter that is an Irish farmer. So um, Jude, you may be familiar with him. But yeah, I, I think the more we can learn and listen and see what these people are presenting, the better we will be in, in informing and seeing how we can approach approach people. What, what do you think? Yeah, I think I'll let Jude speak. There's a, there's a great, a lot of uh, examples um, in the UK and in Ireland of farmers that do an excellent job of outreach on social media. Um, in the US, there's a lot too. And I think the comment that we made this morning was, you know, the, the beauty of sometimes these social media platforms is things don't have to be perfectly polished, right? And sometimes people want to see um, what's actually happening on the farm, right? And so there are different folks. Um, I think the one gentleman I mentioned this morning was uh, Derek Josie out in Oregon is yeah. a Tillamook dairy farmer, um, which is a great example of, you know, he just will go out there with a phone and just, you know, show what the cows are doing and what they're doing in the freestyle barn or when they're out grazing and what's happening. And 
um, and answer people's questions in real time. And I think that's just um, a great example of powerfully being transparent, um, also not apologizing for what you're doing and just explaining the why of why you're doing certain things, right, to take care of the animals and the best interests that you have. Yeah, thank, thank you. Um, let's see, the other person I would recommend that if you're not friends with them on Facebook, um, Jim Aldrich always puts up some pretty good and interesting um, studies. Jim, you know, Jim, Jim's very studious, but I enjoy reading Jim's, Jim's things that he offers. And I, I would encourage anyone that wants to follow Jim. I don't know if he tweets. I certainly don't. Um, I, I stalk, but every once in a while I look at Twitter, every once in a while I look at um, um, Facebook, and, and I'm afraid to say that my, my Instagram feed is, is mostly recipes, apparently beer, and um, sewing things. So every once in a while a, a dairy thing will trip through and I'll make sure I like it, but I, you know, there's algorithms and I don't, I don't, I don't social enough. I'm an old person. Um, so it's, it's good to see that there are people who do Frank again is a Frank Mitlerner is an excellent person to follow Sarah I know has done some work together with Frank on a white paper that you, you can find with our last webinar, because he was our speaker last time. Um, Sarah and Jude, I recently, uh, Sarah knows this because I mentioned it this morning, I recently started listening to a podcast that's here in the US called Fieldwork. And it is two, um, oh, crop farmers. So they're in Iowa, I believe, you know, they're just mostly growing crops, Iowa and Minnesota. One of them is, is actually the fellow who does a lot of YouTube videos, Millennial Farmer. Um, and they do a lot of really good podcasts on um, their, I think their whole, their whole focus is regenerative agriculture. And I wondered if um, the two of you could share perhaps you know, give a definition and, and maybe some explanation of what is regenerative agriculture? Is it another buzz word like um, sustainable agriculture? Or I know there are certain definitions. Um, yeah, if you, if you two would tackle that for me, that would be terrific. Shall I go first? It's a bit of a, a uh, <laughs> it's a very good question. Um, so I actually did a, a, a talk on this a couple of weeks ago and which I found quite difficult because there is no real prescriptive definition. So like there's a USDA label for organic, for example, and there are various definitions for grass fed and, you know, so on, so on, so on. Regenerative, regenerative has some <laughs> principles in terms of improving soil health, not using um, inorganic inputs, trying to improve carbon sequestration, um, trying to improve nutrient cycling. Um, but it is, um, I was going to say one size fits all, and that isn't really the term, but it can be applied to any system, which is both a positive and a negative. So you can have mm -hmm. it on a you know, Kenyan dairy operation with two cows, just as you can with a sort of thousand cow grazed operation in Wisconsin, let's say. Um, 
But because there's no firm fixed definition, either on a national basis or a global basis, I am concerned that it will be a bit of a buzzword and mm. and adopted in a sort of I graze, therefore I must be regenerative, for example, way. Um, and certainly we're seeing a, an awful lot of talk about it here in the UK. We've had two or three um oh, I don't know what you'd call them, really, sort of expo-type things based entirely around regenerative. And honestly, sometimes there's been a little bit of, and I have to sort of speak carefully, but a little bit of sort of snake oil selling around mm, it, you know, yeah. and lots of claims where I'm not entirely sure the science would back it up. So as with a lot of these things, it's sort of going back to, you know, what our great, great, great grandparents did, but just doing it better with more science and more technology. I mean, it's still the same basics of nutrient cycling and best management practices and good pasture management and, you know, yada, 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 all that stuff, just given a new and sexy name. And mm -hmm. um, I'm concerned, and I'm, I don't think I've said this in my talk per se, but the more sort of new, exciting niche perceived to be different practices and systems we have out there, the more competition there is within our industry, which if, if we aren't careful to the consumer, they go, I don't know whether I'm supposed to buy organic, regenerative, local, grass-fed, you know, blah, 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 blah. I don't know what to buy. Perhaps I'll just go and buy the chicken instead or the tofu because that <laughs> seems to be more homogenous. So I honestly think to our industry as a whole, we've got a bigger um, risk of sort of infighting and silos between all of our little sort of labeled systems. I'm here and I'm here and I'm here and I'm better than you because I do this and you don't do this and, you know, so on and so on. Um, so I think we have to be careful that when things are, are good and they do good stuff, we shouldn't use them as too much of a marketing or a differentiation lever such that damages the entire industry because of infighting um, yeah true true uh sarah do you do you have um some insight on on have you have you actually come across some of this yes yeah so i think what what jude mentioned is you know there are even some papers in the last couple of years that have kind of highlighted this that hey there is no definition of regenerative right mm -hmm. let's pull together what some of those things those key principles are. And I think that actually that word is very important when you talk about regenerative, because it typically is more about those, those soil health principles, quite frankly, a lot of it. Um, and I think that's one of those things from the standpoint of livestock agriculture, it actually just highlights how important livestock are, right? From a standpoint of, hey, we want to try to keep the soil covered. We want to try to cycle nutrients as much as we can, um, use our exogenous inputs as wisely as we can, because we're taking we're, we're doing what we can to recycle nutrients. And, and usually livestock integration is a key part of regenerative agriculture principles, right? Um, but yeah, there's, there's different definitions. And I think, I think the points that you brought up are really good. You can almost kind of uh, split the issue into two different ways. One, there's like these arguments about semantics. And I'm sure Judith's probably heard this too. Sometimes people say, well, I don't want to be sustainable. I don't want to just sustain what I have. I want to regenerate and make something better in the future, right? So sometimes that's where people are coming from when they use that word. 
Um, and then I think the other part is this more, okay, let's focus on those first principles and more outcome-based. And th- when you get to that point, it's almost like, it doesn't really matter what you call it. It's just like, let's move the outcomes that we care about in a, in a good direction. Right. Um, but for those folks that are interested, I think there, there are some great examples of people that are trying to actually do the science on regenerative rather than right, get into that kind of more marketing piece. And I would point to a great example there of uh, Dr. Jason Roundtree at Michigan State, who really is trying to do the work, right, to, to test some of these claims about regenerative agriculture. Um, and so that, I guess that would be my, my guidance of when you hear these terms to, to turn to those trusted sources at land-grant universities that are actually doing the work to, to investigate some of the claims and to, to look at what's possible. Terrific. Yeah, that 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 is great insight. Um, I did. Do you know? So one of the examples they gave was this massive dairy out in California, Alexander Farms, that is perhaps a big, um, maybe the, the biggest regenerative dairy. I believe that where they're located is com- uh, climate friendly enough that they are able to graze all the while. So um, is that a requirement that a regenerative livestock um, facility be grazing? Is it grazing 100%? You know, that doesn't happen here in the U.S. like it does in in a climate where you get good rain. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think it's the reality of, you know, there are principles, but they don't all apply in the same every place you are, right? I mean, that's just like everybody on this call totally understands that, right? Agriculture is not cookie cutter. Um, So if you are in Marin County, California, yeah, that's one of the few places where you could probably graze 365, right? Um, Obviously in upstate New York, you know, there's six months of the year where it's going to be mighty tough to graze, right? Your cattle. Um, And so that's part of the challenge. I think one of the key things is when we say integrating livestock with crop production or integrating livestock into these systems, that doesn't only mean grazing, right? Grazing is one of the key ways. And, you know, oftentimes, hey, if you can make the the cow, the combine, it's usually cheaper in a lot of cases, Mm -hmm. right? But there also are the climate realities and um, the fencing and the watering and everything else, right, that you have to keep in mind. Um, but the other way, of course, to do it is make sure you're returning the manure nutrients (laughs) to the landscape, right. And doing it in the right way. And I think if we think about integration in that way, um, there's a whole lot of livestock crop integration happening, right. And it's more, our challenges that we need to resolve are about nutrient mass balance issues, right. In certain locations, um, where we have too much nitrogen, too much phosphorus, right. We're not, we're not delivering it to the right you know, far enough distance, right, to return those nutrients back. So I think that's one of those things is let, let's not box ourselves in geospatially, if you will, mm-hmm. that livestock integration only means grazing, though oftentimes it can. Yeah. Um, one of the, let's see, one of the things that's happening in our area for manure management is um, application where it's injected right in. Um, and I'm going to assume that that is a, a better, um, less emission type situation where than than just applying it and hoping it doesn't run off with a rain event. 
Um, are are those sort of things happening in areas that you're you're working? I, I had a speaker a few years ago, and in California at the time, it seemed like it wasn't a big deal. I mean, New York State has some pretty big dairies, but I would have thought that this would have been done more in other places. But Yeah, and and sorry to if Judy, if you have something to ask or add here. Um, yeah, that's a great example of like, well, there's all these protests happening in the Netherlands right now around nitrogen, right? Um, and if we think about injecting manure, one thing that we certainly know is we're going to save all that ammonia gas from from entering the atmosphere, right? So from a standpoint of taking advantage of manure and its nitrogen credits, putting it directly in the soil, not having exposed to the surface, is a great way to save those nutrients from leaving the environment, right? Um, because you can lose basically half your ammonical nitrogen and 24 hours, right? If you just mm -hmm. surface apply manure. Um, so that's an advantage. If you're in a situation where you have too much nitrogen though, uh, injecting manure can be a, <laughs> can be yeah. a problem, right? But I think I know who you're talking about there in, 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 uh, in the Finger Lakes region, right? And some really innovative stuff is quite neat. Uh, another yeah. place where you'll see that is, um, Erie, Erie, uh, Lake Erie watershed, right? In Ohio, there's a lot of folks doing drag lining manure as side dressing manure, um, even drag lining it, you can knock the corn down a bit and by God, it'll stand back up, you know, if it's short enough. So there's some, yeah. there's some neat stuff like that. And I think with fertilizer prices now, um, I think that kind of highlights there's, Hey, there's nutrients in that manure. <laughs> what can we yeah. do to take advantage of that? Even just economically, let alone the environmental advantages there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Jude. Yeah. Yeah. I would just echo that. We're seeing people doing that over here. We're seeing more and more focus on nutrient management plans and um, proving that we're doing the right thing and um, more and more areas being um, having greater restrictions in terms of what we can apply and when and how. And I would just always add the caveat that all these things should work. But it's again, as with cows, it's all down to management, isn't it? So even the best thing can can go wrong occasionally. But in principle, yeah, it should yeah. it should work well to reduce emissions. Yeah. Um, so I haven't got any other questions. I really appreciate the two of you coming on here. Um, it's great. I want to let you go and, and not keep. I I have a billion questions because this is this is an area that I I'm um, quite quite vested in. But um, I'm going to let you go and let the rest of our group go. Thank you so much. Um, great presentation, great information, and it's been a delight to work with both of you, Sarah. I'm sorry I missed seeing you at ADFA. Um, it, yeah, <laughs> I'm not used to meetings yet. Meetings are an, an unusual animal still. So yeah, Jude, always, always a pleasure to work with you. So. Thank you so much. And thank you. Thank you, Jude. I hope you get to sleep. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> thank you both. Yeah, I'll do my best. I think I've had a bit too much Diet Coke yet, but. Uh... <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> okay. Sean, thank you for joining us. And Paula, you guys did great. So everybody have a good evening and we'll okay. see you next month. All right. Yeah, good night. Good, good day. Bye. Good night. Thanks, everybody. Good night. Bye.